My name is Jen Bogart, and myself, along with my four children, were forcefully and unlawfully evicted from our home on February 26th. I was what you're hearing is tape from a committee hearing last month at the state capitol. We faced unrealistic timelines to take any sort of corrective action to delay or halt the eviction. For three hours, witnesses argued about whether Colorado's law has the right balance between tenants and landlords. The property is perfect to meet the needs of the renters in my area. We will not offer our apartment as a rental if this bill passes in its current form. Housing is a huge issue for many Coloradans, and not surprisingly, it's also on the mind of a lot of Colorado lawmakers this session. Yeah, definitely. And it is one of the things that we're tackling on Purplish this week. From member-supported CPR News, this is Purplish, a show about Colorado politics and democracy. I'm Benta Berkland here with my colleague, Andrew Kenny. Hello. We are recording this on the morning of Thursday, April 22nd. So coming into this legislative session, Republicans and Democrats said their top focus was economic recovery from the pandemic. And Democrats in particular have said the pandemic really highlighted deep disparities in Colorado. I think that seems to be one of the drivers of this huge focus on housing. Yeah, we're, we're seeing one of the bigger slates of housing bills this year, and it's totally connected into the pandemic and fears about the impact it's going to have on uh, people across income levels and on people's ability to maintain their homes and their lifestyles. So, Andy, obviously housing issues in the state and concerns about the expensive housing and everything, it's been an ongoing problem. Do you feel like the pandemic has really opened up the door wider for bigger reforms? Yeah, During the first part of the pandemic, if you remember, housing loomed really large. There were all these protests to cancel the rent, and we knew this was devastating jobs where uh, a lot of lower-income people worked, and there was really enormous fear of the tsunami of evictions. And it ended up getting a federal moratorium on evictions and a state moratorium on evictions. That was pretty incredible. Like, I don't think that we've ever in modern history seen that kind of widespread action on evictions and rentals like that. And so evictions are pretty low, right? Is that because of this moratorium? Yeah, the eviction tsunami has not hit. Evictions have been at historic low throughout the pandemic. But they've been kind of fluctuating up and down, coming back some because the state of the moratorium has kept changing. But for now, that moratorium is in place through September. So the huge wave of evictions hasn't hit. Here we are kind of at this moment in time where hopefully the pandemic seems to be starting to wrap up. And some lawmakers do want to change laws around evictions long term. Yeah, so we're seeing lawmakers look to that future and start to talk about, okay, is this tsunami eviction still coming? What can we do to shore things up for after the pandemic when some of these restrictions and extra benefits start to disappear? And also, how can they change the housing market for the better in the long term, you know, at least according to them? We started this episode hearing some tape from a woman testifying on a bill that deals with evictions. And tell us more about that legislation and what it would do. That was Senate Bill 173, and it's probably the central, most talked about of all these bills. Okay. It's not like a moratorium, so it wouldn't stop evictions or cancel the rent or anything. The heart of it is about changing the way that evictions work and trying to limit some of the avenues that people end up getting kicked out of housing. Mm -hmm. Most notably, it would set a cap on the kind of late fees that landlords can pile on to you as you miss your rent. And it would create a grace period where you wouldn't be able to be charged late fees unless you were a certain amount of time late. So if you do make it harder to evict renters, 
where does that leave landlords? And I, how much pushback are supporters getting from especially the small individual landlords and even some of the corporate owners? I could almost predict how this debate was going to go because it's the same every time where you hear the exact response that you would expect, which is that landlords say that if you put on excessive restrictions on eviction, it'll take them too long to get non-paying tenants out. It'll take away too much of their power to actually collect rent and police their own properties. And they, they do tend to point to smaller landlords as the ones that are the most vulnerable, where, oh, well, if they can't collect their rent this month, how are they going to pay a mortgage? How are you going to stop them from just selling and getting out of the rental market? So, you know, eviction's one thing. But actually being able to afford your rent or your mortgage if you own a house or condo, that's another question. Totally different question. What about addressing that, you know, such high housing costs in Mm -hmm. so many parts of Colorado? Oh, boy. That's the hard question. Yeah. In a weird way, eviction, despite the really difficult politics around it, is an easier thing to tackle because it's something that the state legislature has distinct control over. They can just go in there and kind of change some of the numbers and the processes. But when you're talking about high rent levels and high housing costs, that's a problem with the housing market right now, which is a lot harder to control. I think as everybody knows right now, our for sale market is just going bonkers. It's almost impossible for most people to afford a home right now. Yeah, I was looking at some of the statistics and I read an article in the Denver Post that quoted a realtor. This person said he'd made two bids for clients recently. One was $100,000 over the asking price. The other was $90,000 over the asking price. They didn't get the houses they still lost. (laughs) That's a weird phenomenon. I should say the state legislature actually is trying to tackle one element of the housing market itself, and it's kind of notable. Mm. They're trying to encourage more affordable housing by reversing, overriding something called the Telluride decision. Tell me more about that. This would basically allow local governments to have a lot more control of their own affordable housing policies, Mm. doing stuff like saying, if you're going to build a new community, you need to include some units that have lower prices, or you need to do some alternative. Basically, it's a form of rent control on new development. Lawmakers definitely over the years have looked at what they could do to bring housing prices down. And a couple years ago, the biggest discussion at the Capitol was dealing with construction defects. And so there was a bipartisan bill, if you remember, oh, and yeah. it, it, it made it more difficult for condo owners to sue builders for construction defects. And so the goal of that was to spur more affordable condo construction. Uh-huh. And people were saying at the time, we have a housing crisis. Talking about this makes me realize we need to follow up and check back in on how effective that legislation was. Oh, man, I think we can safely say it wasn't uh, it wasn't a cure all. It probably didn't solve everything, despite how much attention and time it took. And, you know, to go back to what I said earlier, that's just kind of a function of the fact that the state doesn't have absolute control of the housing market, can't control how cities are doing zoning and limiting construction or can't control the price of lumber, which is like out of control right now. Or the fact that a pandemic changed the housing market a little bit. Yeah. It was such a feat, though, to get that construction defects bill done. Mm -hmm. I mean, it took years of work. Mm -hmm. And there was this grand bargain, if you will, Republicans, Democrats, home builders, progressives. Do you see anything like that or similar to that taking shape this year? Not On the partisan front, Republicans, at least in terms of being sponsors, haven't been heavily involved in the biggest of these bills. They're Mm -hmm. mostly coming from Denver area Democrats. 
Republican sponsors are on board with some more administrative stuff about producing reports on affordable housing and some more technical, smaller changes that that won't really change the market as a whole. So one thing there has been pretty broad support for is uh, direct aid for renters. Mm -hmm. Um, That was part of an earlier COVID state stimulus package and expected to be a priority for another round of state funds. You're right. That does feel like there was that much broader support because there was such an obvious immediate need. And there also was a bunch of federal money to give out. And now there's been more state money than expected. So there was consensus on at least trying to patch some of the holes with that immediate stimulus and support. But that doesn't change, again, how the the market itself will work. That won't change what happens after the pandemic. I mean, I would note there's a different bill that deals with direct housing aid that is somewhat controversial because it would try to help undocumented immigrants access state housing benefits and direct assistance. And that is the other topic we're discussing in this week's episode of Purplish. To put this in perspective, I think it's safe to say, having talked to lawmakers and advocates, that this session is pretty unprecedented in terms of the number of bills that could pass and that impact undocumented immigrants specifically. So these are measures that try to make their lives better. I spoke with Assistant House Majority Leader Serena Gonzalez-Gutierrez. Even though historically and currently the issue of undocumented immigrants and benefits, there's lots of disagreement on that topic. She says she doesn't see that it should be controversial. We know that immigrants, undocumented or not, they are some of the main contributors to our economy. They contribute in taxes. They contribute in, you know, consumerism and buying things. I don't see why this is such a big issue. Well, I guess it's my turn to ask some of the questions. Uh, Bento, do you think the pandemic has brought a renewed focus on this topic, just like with housing? I think so, yes. Democrats want to focus on equity, and they say that the pandemic has highlighted disparities, as I was mentioning earlier, and also that undocumented immigrants, a lot of them have been on the front lines of the workforce during the pandemic. But Gonzalez Gutierrez says it's not just about the pandemic. That isn't the only reason that there's a lot of interest from more lawmakers than usual. She said Democrats who do control state government, from the governor to her colleagues at the Capitol, are more willing to pass reforms because Donald Trump is no longer president. Ah. There was a lot of pushback just because of concerns and fears of, you know, what the federal government could do to local governments, to state governments. And so I think a lot of us are at this point where we're ready to move on um, from that time, right, that four years. That's interesting. That reminds me of the healthcare debate where we've heard that Democrats might be more interested in healthcare reform because they know the Biden administration will be more supportive. But mm-hmm. uh, on immigration, what what kind of bills are we seeing? Well, one of the key measures would roll back a ban that prevents cities and counties from providing public benefits to undocumented immigrants. So this ban has been law since 2006. And that was when we had a split legislature and Democrats and Republicans got behind this effort and at the time promoted it as one of the strictest anti-immigration laws in the U.S. And so I would say advocates and members of uh, the community fighting for more rights for undocumented workers, they have wanted to change this since 2006, you know, the day Republican Governor Bill Owens signed it into law. So this is a long time coming if this passes. That must feel like a huge potential victory for them and also shows like Wow, how much immigration policy and debate has changed since the 2000s. It was it was a different world. Yeah, especially from the Democratic side, for sure. They've gotten a lot more willing to stand up for undocumented immigrants. I think that's right. How have Republicans reacted to that bill and the others? 
Well, I talked to Republican Senator Don Corm. He represents Montrose and the southwest part of the state, so a more rural community. He's one of the most moderate lawmakers at the Capitol. He said he doesn't support this, at least right now. He feels coming out of the pandemic, the state should focus on citizens who were really hurt during the pandemic, who can't get their unemployment benefits, which I know you've covered a lot of Mm -hmm. issues around that system. So he doesn't feel like Colorado should be adding more people into getting benefits right now. And then I also talked to Senator Bob Rankin. He's a Republican from Carbondale. He serves on the powerful Joint Budget Committee. He acknowledged undocumented immigrants are here in this state. They're part of the workforce. He says he doesn't want undocumented immigrants to just be set aside and kind of abandoned, but he also thinks there needs to be a federal solution. He wants the federal government to step in here, and he doesn't want states to just take these piecemeal approaches. If we're the only state passing all this stuff, we will be attracting a large population, and we can't handle it. We, we Housing. I mean, we do not have housing in my r- rural communities for, for these folks. So it's a very delicate balance. I want to do everything I can for those people who live in my district. As long as they're here, I can't control that. On the other hand, I think we it can get out of balance. Well, that's long been a conservative talking point or argument is that there's limited resources and you can't support more people, can't encourage an influx, but it's very 2021 Colorado to hear it wrapped back around to housing. Right. I mean, housing is such a complex issue. And this just highlights that, you know, here we are talking about a bill about undocumented immigrants. And it's one of Rankin's top concerns and also notes that the housing challenges are not metro area specific. It is throughout Colorado. Yeah, I think it shows that kind of like healthcare housing costs have now become acknowledged bipartisan issue. On immigration, though, again, Benta, they I know there's also a, a new bill signed into law that would remove the term, quote, illegal aliens from a lot of contracts, you know, state documents, things like that. Yeah, the term that would replace that or is going to replace it since it's law is uh-huh. workers without authorization. Democratic Senator Julie Gonzalez was one of the main sponsors of this change. And I heard stories from community members who were like, well, why did I have to use such ugly language? Which feels symbolic, but also is important because every time that people were being asked to read a contract and to see that language there, it was hurtful. It was mostly a partisan vote. In the Senate, three Republicans did back that bill. They supported getting rid of the term illegal aliens. Mm -hmm. Um, In the House, it was strictly party line. Well, and the argument against illegal aliens language is that people aren't illegal and that maybe the act of crossing the border without authorization is. But it's an effort to force people to talk about undocumented immigrants as people. There's a whole slate of bills Democrats are running on immigration We couldn't get to all of them in this episode, but I did want to talk about a bill that got unanimous support in both the House and the Senate, and it would expand an existing state law that says it's a crime to threaten or extort or blackmail someone because of their immigration status. So one of the things they pointed to is part of the expansion. You can't try to prevent someone from doing something either. So they cited a case where there was a domestic violence victim. Mm -hmm. The alleged perpetrator said, if you go to the police, I'm going to turn you into ICE. So you you can't extort people for this. And even though the, the bigger picture, we know there's not agreements on policy, people did all say, yes, this needs to be expanded. That's it for this week's episode of Purplish, but we do have that little moment where we step back and say, wait, 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 what? 
And I had a moment, you know, there's a lot to choose from sometimes, but <laughs> one of the, the fun parlor games at the Capitol is <laughs> trying to figure out when the session will end. Fun. Yes. Very, very exciting, I know. But um, <laughs> under the state constitution, the legislative session cannot go longer than 120 days. Mm-hmm. For the first time ever, lawmakers got a ruling that under these extraordinary circumstances of a pandemic, they can pause the session. They did that in January to get as many people who wanted vaccines vaccinated. Mm-hmm. So usually the session ends in May, but because of that pause earlier, the end date, if, if we go the full 120 days, is Saturday, June 12th. And I may have asked a staffer that a few weeks ago because I just wanted to find out how late am I going to be in the Capitol this summer. Oh, I've been asking everybody this. Yeah. So I was on a call with legislative leaders in the House and Senate, and they set this goal of finishing by Memorial Day. And in my head, I was thinking, wait, what, really? Are you actually thinking that's realistic? Memorial Day. That's a full like two weeks almost, right? I think so. Yeah. So we've got federal guidance on stimulus, you know, how the state is going to spend billions of dollars that they, they expect that to be legislation and so many other huge agenda items out there. Yeah, they've still got to figure out transportation and the public option. I'm not counting on finishing earlier. And in fact, I never expect to. And I don't begrudge them taking 120 yeah. days either. But I'd love it if the final moment is not midnight, June 12th. Well, I've got my spiritual defenses up. I'm not even accepting the idea that Memorial Day is going to be a thing. I'm I'm there until the bitter end. (laughs) Then you can be pleasantly surprised if it does happen. Very pleasantly. That's it for this week's episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join at CPR.org. To keep up with everything we've talked about today and more, follow us on Twitter. I'm at Andy K-N-N-Y. I'm at Benta Berkland. This is Purplish from Colorado Public Radio. It's purplish. P-U-R-P-L-E. I. Uh, no. P-U-R-P-L-I-S-H. Purplish. Well, I know what's coming at the end of the show. <laughs> Don't put in me misspelling purplish. I did that on purpose.